You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. I'm Elizabeth McGuan, and today I'm joined by Karen McGrain, who's spent the last 15 years helping companies like The New York Times and Condé Nast publish content across devices more effectively. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. For the sake of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I have been a an information architecture and content strategy user experience consultant for, honestly, getting on 20 years now. I'm one of the few people in this industry who really came in through the front door. I have a graduate degree in technical communication and human-computer interaction. And I led the user experience practice at Razorfish for about 10 years. And then for the last 10 years, I've been an independent consultant. And I focus really on content strategy-heavy projects, um, a lot of IA work. But a lot of what I do lately is less about the front-end website and really more about organizational process and consulting. Cool. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to start off talking about. Um, I know your second book, Going Responsive, is really as much about organizational change as it is about design. And I sort of, it sort of occurred to me that organizational change is something that consistently crops up when we talk about design, and even more particularly when we talk about content. So I just wanted to know if you had comments on that. Yes, I think it's it's such a big subject that, honestly, I look at this as like a generational shift that a lot of the challenges that I think people like you and I face in getting good decisions made about design or content in the enterprise are really rooted in larger organizational structures or, you know, questions about where does digital fit in the organization or how does content fit into our processes. And I think one of the reasons that these changes are really challenging to make is that organizational structures change slowly Mm -hmm. and you're dealing with people's jobs, people's careers, like companies can't you know, they can't, it's not like they can just go in and be like, okay, we're going to get rid of all of our employees and replace them with shiny new employees that, that, you know, understand all this stuff. You're working with people's human ability to change and that's hard. So I, I realized a few years back that a lot of the problems that I was having with designing something that I thought was really great and then coming back six months later or a year later and having it all be torn out or having it not work the way I expected. Like, I saw myself getting frustrated with that. Like, oh, well, you know, these stupid people ruining my beautiful design. (laughs) What's wrong with them? And I, I really came to realize that I was the problem there or that it was my belief that if I just designed something really nice that they everybody would change and want to use it and change their process and workflow. Well, <laughs> that doesn't work. So over the years, I've really come to focus a lot more on the internal processes and org structure and culture change that needs to happen. And I think it's really important work, but it's work that operates on a much longer time horizon than just redesigning a website. Sure. It's kind of glacial pace of change sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I'm kind of curious. You've um, obviously you've worked with New York Times. You've worked with Condé Nast. You've even worked with smaller uh, publications like The Toast, which I want to talk to you about a bit more. Yeah. Um, and I suppose they're kind of what I would call actual publishing companies because they yep. are, as opposed to sort of the everyone is a publisher approach, which, you know, most businesses are now sort of setting themselves up as publishers, getting into content marketing and so on. And then, of course, there's there's startups as well. Um, I guess, do you see that there's different content needs or even different organizational change needs in publishing companies that kind of get content versus product companies that are maybe new to content? 
That's a good question. I actually do. I would say probably the majority of my work these days is with non-publishers. Mm-hmm. So working with hospitals or technology companies or, you know, just other, I'm working with an architecture firm right now. And I think that they do have different problems than traditional publishers have in that I, I often describe the traditional publishers as a little bit like the canary in the coal mine. Like they have been forced to adapt to the changes in digital much more quickly. Yeah. And it's been much more painful for them. But I think that traditional publishers, I, I think that they're understanding of editorial processes and their, you know, the fact that their entire business is geared around doing that well does in some ways give them some language or some tools that they can put in place to start adapting. Whereas other businesses that don't have any sort of like real digital process and don't really have any sort of true publishing process or editorial process, when you go in and talk to them, you realize like how badly they're struggling. Like, you know, the, the website might look perfectly, like the website looks pretty good. The front end's okay. But you look at what their processes are internally. I mean, it, it, you know, you just see the sheer number of like, it's like, oh, we have this Excel spreadsheet and then we copy into this Word document and then we email it to somebody and then there's this form you have to fill out online and then we copy that into another Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so painful and it's almost like they don't realize it could be better. Right. And, you know, it's like they've been just sort of struggling and duct taping and band-aiding along for so long now that they just assume that that's how, how you work. And so I, I really enjoy those kinds of projects because it's nice to be able to come in genuinely as an outsider who can say, oh, hey, there's a better way to do this and I'm going to help you get there. And in many ways, it's just like, you know, it's such a relief to them to be like, oh, wow, but this is so much faster and better. They wouldn't have ever thought about it themselves because that's not their business. That's my business. Sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm in the position of having started at Intercom as a content strategist on the product team. Um, and that's, you know, I'm in a place that's always really cared about good content, but there wasn't actually that role for content within product. And I think sort of you were talking a lot about, you know, large organizations and, and I suppose not even large organizations, but ones that have been around a long time and that have, they've had processes that, did, processes that don't work for a long time. Um, although I know you've worked with younger places as well. Um, I guess I'm wondering if we are thinking about startups or new organizations or new companies starting up, at, at what point should they start thinking about content strategy? Do you think it's something that they'll only really understand if they run into the problems first? Or do you think it's something that we can start to embed earlier and earlier on in like a company's lifespan? You know, I think much like, I mean, I guess it's like much like user experience design. I think content strategy is for everyone and is appropriate for every organization, but it's a question of at what scale you're doing that content strategy. So the types of challenges that I go in and work through with a, with a very large scale enterprise might be much more focused on content modeling, uh, editorial and production workflow, making large-scale changes or even replatforming a CMS, those are changes that happen at, at a magnitude that might not be relevant to a startup. But a startup probably could also be looking at a variety of processes that come from content strategy, whether that's figuring out messaging and tone of voice, whether that's defining a much smaller scale editorial and production workflow, but still thinking about that as a process rather than just as something that happens haphazardly. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the same way that that the 
tools and techniques of user experience design will help a team and an organization stay focused on the needs of their users or the needs of their customers. I think the tools from content strategy will help organizations of every size stay focused on how their customers or how their users want to read and interact and what they're coming to the website to learn and know. And I think those those techniques and that mindset is every bit as important whether you are a five-person startup or a 500,000-person enterprise. Yeah. I mean, I thought that, I mean, that thinking was incredibly evident in the work that you did with the Toast. Um, and for our listeners who don't know about it, it's a kind of, I guess you describe it as a sort of satirical literary feminist online yes. journal. Yeah, I think that's a good description of it. <laughs> and I think, did they reach out to you on Twitter? Is that is that how that the design work happened? No, I reached out to them. Oh, wonderful. So. Okay, great. <laughs> I... I had had a conversation with Jeff Eaton, who is the the Drupal developer. The WordPress, he did the WordPress implementation on the on the project. He normally works in Drupal, and he and I were were just talking about the toast and how great it was. And I, I was like, "That's my dream project." And Mine we too. kind of <laughs> were like, "What if we What if we just told them that we wanted to redesign it?" Because I, I hope it, it is in no way disrespectful to the the fantastic people at the Toast when I say that their previous website was hot garbage. It, it was, was charmingly it was a disaster. naive, <laughs> and it was one of those things where you I like I love the writing, I love the voice, I love you know I, you just you got the sense of their their personalities coming through so strongly in that site. Yeah. And you just saw the actual web design and development as this like layer of smog yes. that was holding them back. And you just, I just looked at that and I was like, oh, I just want to fix that so badly. I could make that so good. And so I tweeted at them where I was just like, this is my dream project. And Nicole, I think, tweeted back at me within 12 hours and was like, okay, lady, let's talk. That's great. And so it just turned out to be uh, just a really wonderful project, like really genuinely. Uh, I, I, I do not say this about any project that I work on. It was seriously the best project I've ever done. <laughs> I mean, I think that there were, I mean, it, aside from the fact that I love that website, I think that, and most people would think, oh, well, that has nothing to do with maybe the kind of work that I'm doing or that you're doing generally where, because you're dealing with like articles and long form content and short form content and so on. And it's, uh, it's really a journal as opposed to a business. Um, but what I thought you did was you, you took their voice and especially their sense of humor and you actually embedded it in the design and the experience. And it really made me think about, you know, how do you balance bringing a company or, you know, a magazine's voice into the product, into the actual thing that you're designing without kind of, you know, counter doing away with things like ease of use and usability and so on. So they had these like really long tags that were just incredibly funny, but obviously they didn't really go anywhere or do anything. So it would just be great to talk about how you approached problems like that and how you wanted to retain their personality without doing away with, you know, the cardinal virtues of information architecture. Right. I think the, I think too often people think that the voice only comes through maybe in the actual substance or maybe perhaps in the design. But if you're somebody like me with 20 years of experience in information architecture, like I think that the, one of the strongest ways that that comes through is in the IA. It's in the taxonomy. It's in the metadata. And when I say that, I know it sounds so wonky that hmm. people don't believe me, but the toast, I think, is a great calling card for being able to show how that sort of analysis around what the, the, the connective tissue that holds the site together, how if you do that really well, 
that can be one of the strongest ways that you communicate the brand and the, the voice and the personality of the site. So Eileen Webb did some really, really fantastic work with them on cleaning up their tags. So they, I, I think they, they got this idea from the all and they had lots of like long, funny tags that didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's like, that's great from a personality standpoint, but, you know, it, it just like makes your little information architect heart weep when you see 6,000 <laughs> tags that have only one article attached to them. So in, I think, a really great example of client trolling, uh, we, made, we made them go through all of their tags and tell us which ones were real and which ones weren't. And that wasn't just, just to be mean to them. <laughs> you know, that wasn't just punishment for, for their funny tags. It actually was something that paid off really well because we set up what we call, uh, I hate to say this, they're called, it's called recirculation in the publishing industry. And so we called them recirc modules. Okay. Um, and I feel dirty admitting that that's <laughs> all of them, but that's what it was. So there's a lot of different places in the site where you can see other articles that are in the same series or by the same author or in the same category. And previously they might've had one, you know, one like related content module, but we managed to infuse that through the entire site. And I think that for some of their like more regularly published series, for example, being able to get to the previous ish, you know, episodes or stories in, the, in that series is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think for a small publisher, every additional click that they can get coming in from a social link is, is ad revenue. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's the whole business. So Anything that we could do to improve the performance of the site, improve the load times of the site so that if someone came in from Twitter or Facebook and maybe wouldn't have been able to read that article at all or maybe would have only read that one article, if we can suck them in a little bit and get them to click on a couple of other things, that's, you know, that's, that's the entire business model right there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, I mean, business models, it's a great way to sort of start the next uh, thing I wanted to talk about, which is really, um, you know, you're designing, I think, a, a collection of content, a collection of stories and thinking about ways to kind of keep people in one place. But I, I also know in, in other parts of your work, you've been really talking about things like, you know, content cards and responsive design and content not being locked down to a page model and being sort of separated from um, presentation, being separated from the content. So I'm just, I guess, curious about how you see um, the overlap between sort of business models that are very much founded on a website being a website, being a place, and the kind of principles that we see content going in, which is more about freeing content from particular places. Is there is there a conflict there? Is it just a semantic thing? I think that like my, my most recent book, Going Responsive, was really a book about organizational change that I used, that I hid under the cover of a, of a book about yeah. responsive. And my last book, Content Strategy for Mobile, was really a book about information architecture that I hid under the cover of mobile, like a little tro- Trojan horse <laughs> to get in these ideas. Uh, I believe so strongly that the web really is about like smaller bits of content, smaller, you know, smaller, more modular, reusable chunks of content or reusable um, components on the front end that can be connected together through metadata. And that it isn't really about publishing pages anymore, but it's, it's about thinking in systems. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, I, I am 100% confident that that is the way the web should work, and I pretty much believe that I'm going to be working on that and for the rest of my career. Um, I'm very happy 
to to look throughout the rest of my career and think, okay, if I can if I can make if I can make a small small but meaningful impact on the world of web design by continuing to advocate for this way of thinking, I will be really satisfied with my work in life. But I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. I think when you look at the history of human communication and how many hundreds or thousands of years we have of putting ink on paper or thinking about you know, what a sheet of paper is, the idea that now there is no page, mm-hmm. there's only like bits and pieces that you can connect together in different ways, people don't naturally think that way. And I think the idea of separating content from presentation, the idea that you could have this underlying content that is described semantically. So you have a sense of the priorities and the relationships of that content, but that's not literally described by what it should look like or, you know, how, you know, what, how big something is or where it goes on the page, that, that, that those questions about how priorities and relationships translate into styling and layout is two separate conversations. Yeah. I think that's very, very difficult to, to figure out. I think it's challenging for organizations to, to start thinking that way. And I think today with the rise of mobile devices, that's really the inflection point where, where people kind of start to get it. Like yeah. I will go into meetings sometimes and it's like someone will have like independently invented semantic HTML in their head and they'll be like, wait a minute, we need to do this thing. And I'm like, yep, yep. People have been talking about that for 20, 20 plus years now. It's just that now that you have to publish to a website and a mobile app and a watch and a kiosk. You've really got to figure these things out. And I will, I will actually say, I think that responsive design, like one of the benefits of responsive design is that at least then you can just manage and maintain one website. Okay. Um, for many of these larger organizations, like getting their stuff onto a website and an app platform is means that they have to think about this in new ways. Mm-hmm. And if they can just deal with the web and app question and not deal with the app question plus three different websites, that's a much easier way to solve that problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, it seems as though um, until people, different things would be happening behind the scenes, but if the end result was still a website that looked like a website, it was very hard for people to wrap their heads around what was different about what was going on behind the scenes, even if even if content was being handled in a very clever way. Um, but I think the new paradigms that you're talking about, you know, well, not new anymore, but mobile and so on, um, it kind of makes it obvious for people because they see the end result. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, we've, we obviously were building, you know, things very, very fast here at Intercom and we're constantly thinking about new ways that messages, which is a particular type of content, can get out into the world and, and obviously already looking at things like notifications and cards and sort of sub sub message level things um, or things that can go inside messages. Um, but we're also sort of thinking about what happens next. So what happens when completely new contexts are available and, and people aren't just on a phone, but we have other contexts that are out there. Do you see new contexts that are sort of beyond mobile becoming important in the next, say, like three to five years? I don't know if I would give you a guarantee that this is three to five years. I'll but hold you <laughs> I definitely think that voice interactions, um, audio interfaces will be a huge new leap forward in terms of how people interact with technology. And I think what you see happening with Siri or the Amazon Echo or the types of interactions that people might have in their cars, 
I think those those interfaces or that format of interacting with content and services, to me, that's a fantastic example of what it truly means to separate content from form. Mm-hmm. That the idea that you might have something that should be emphasized and what emphasis means in a visual layout is totally different from what emphasis means in a voice interface. So I, I don't know when this is going to happen. Like I, I don't, I have no promises that it's three to five years or even 15 to 20 years. But I do think that if we're trying to figure out what interactions with technology look like over the next 50 years, I think that audio will be a huge component of it. And so when you really start kind of just imagining that as a thought exercise, it starts to make you break down what's actually semantic information versus what's styling information. And you realize how much of our ability to encode the meaning of content or the relationships of the content is totally dependent on layout. And so it means, you know, I, I genuinely think that when I talk to clients that are, are trying to be forward looking, I'm like, the organizations that start planning for this future now are the ones that are going to have a fighting shot of getting their stuff to work appropriately on whatever new platform or device comes along. If you wait, if you don't start thinking this way now, then 10 years from now when this is reality, you're not going to be able to get there because you know some other organization is going to have had 10 years of a head start on you. Yeah, and I would say, um, you know, voice communication is something that it's even more specialized than, you know, editorial content was. I'd say, you know, it might be that just as we found lots of ex-journalists were becoming content strategists, that we might be looking to podcasters and radio people and people who just understand, you know, verbal communication in a, in a much more meaningful way, maybe. Um, it's curious to sort of think about... Um, I guess, what that means for for media companies, but also for product companies. I mean, do you think that just as we're starting to get this sort of wider understanding of what content strategy is and and how content works within a product, do you ever feel that that will become uh, more embedded? Or do you think as content formats change, we'll have new requirements, uh, new specialisms? So UX has been around for a number of decades, and it's it's sort of approaches have changed. Do you think that that will happen with content strategy as as formats change, not just from long form to short form, but from written to, um, to audio? Oh, I would think absolutely. I think that the, this like digital industry user experience writ large is one that seems to have massive shifts in, in structures every five years or so, like information architecture, and evolving into informa- into interaction design, evolving into content strategy, I would not imagine that we have stopped the evolution of the types of roles and specializations that we need to have. I think that in the like in the web design and development space, the idea that we need people who are designers who can also prototype or also design in code, I think there's quite a bit of movement in that space now. Where if I were if I were 20 years younger. I, I think the types of tools and the types of ways that I would communicate my design decisions would be very different. Um, I think the same thing will happen with content, where I think we will just need to have 
new and different specializations to cover the full range of narrative and storytelling and, you know, interactive content and audio and social and, and you know, who knows what's going to come next. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess two questions from that. Um, who would you, what would you see if you were a young designer starting out or even a student looking to go into education um, and you were sort of looking forward, where do you think the interesting um, hires are going to come from. I mean, we, we talk about like there's journalists, but there's also like game writers are obviously really, really well suited to that space. Do you think there's any particular like go and study this advice that you would give to young people starting out? Well, I, w- I guess I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I, I teach in an MFA <laughs> program in interaction design. Uh, that's at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. I think that academia moves even more slowly than large corporations. Sure. (laughs) So I think that it's taken, I think it's taken universities 20 years to even get a glimmering of what's going on in the digital world. But I think even I started teaching in this program seven years ago. And I think if you look now, there's many more programs out there for people to study digital design or interactive design or, you know, some form of, of digital content strategy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, my sense is that in the next 10 years or so, you might see a world in which uh, employers are looking to hire people who have a college degree or a graduate degree in this industry in a way that that would have been laughable. I mean, it may even still be somewhat laughable today <laughs> <laughs> that other than having a computer science degree, most people who work in this industry have been trained in some some other discipline. They've been trained as journalists or, you know, communications professionals yeah. or, you know, wh- whatever. And I think maybe tomorrow, you know, 10 years or so, like there may be more more high profile programs that are actually focused on on interactive design like like Carnegie Mellon's had had a program like that for 20 years we may have more people coming out of programs like that and employers may be actively recruiting for people who have been trained in the digital world as opposed to just being trained more broadly in say journalism sure no absolutely it's interesting i suppose as 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 the formats become more diverse and i suppose the technology becomes more complex we're starting to see you know i think much more in-depth work in like ai and robotics as well as this on the other side of the spectrum, if there is a spectrum, you know, drawing from the humanities and drawing from people who understand communication. Um, do you think, I mean, how do you feel about that and how it's evolving? Is it making you more excited about the future? Do you think it's going to get make organizational change even harder um, as these sort of more, as most organizations would think of them, kind of esoteric things become vital to moving digital forward? Yeah, it's like humanity's drive for new technology has not yet been sated. <laughs> and so I, I do think that the innovation that's happening in, in all sorts of spheres, Internet of Things and robotics, those are always compelling, interesting things to, to learn about and read about. You know, I, I enjoy keeping up on a little bit on what's what's happening in those spaces. Sure. But I'm also so sympathetic to organizations that have to parse through, like, is this actually relevant and meaningful to my business? Or is it, is this just yet another fad? And, you know, I, I don't, I I will say again, I'm very sympathetic to that because I think there are marketing teams within the organization that are incentivized to think about this next shiny object and not necessarily think about 
like the long-term value that they might gain from from particular decisions. And then you have uh, digital teams or IT teams that are really struggling to keep up with the pace of change. And I think it's hard to know at any given moment whether the decision you're making is for a fad or for something that actually will have long-term value. Um, I personally think that most organizations suffer from not investing enough in the long term and not not thinking systemically enough about their content management system, about you know information architecture and taxonomy and, and content modeling in a way that will give them long-term value. And I think there's all too much attention paid to very short-term campaign-focused thinking where it's like, let's put something out, it'll be up for three months and then it's done and you know, we'll, now we'll never think about that again. Those decisions, I think, are vestiges of print advertising or TV advertising and that's not really how we should be thinking about the web. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned this at the beginning and I'm curious, how has your approach to that changed over the years to sort of, I would imagine that now when people bring you in, you're a very well known and a published author, they kind of know a little bit about what to expect and they're kind of, I suppose, anticipating and hoping that you can help them. How has that, I suppose, changed your approach to their problems or to sort of convincing them of different ways of changing or different ways of taking a longer view? Yeah, I'm, sometimes people ask me, like, how do you sell content strategy or how That's do you sell question. information architecture? <laughs> That's the question. And, and I'm like, I don't really. I, and, you know, I hate to say it, but it, I guess the, the work of having a point of view and putting your ideas out publicly, writing books and doing speaking – means that when people hire me, they're hiring that point of view. That's, sure. that's, that's why they hire me. So I don't really have to sell it to them. Or maybe another way to put it is I already did all of the selling by putting out my ideas and hopefully it resonates with people. I think that as I'm, as I'm in there working with organizations, as I have to negotiate with people who, who get it, Usually the people who, br who bring me in are the ones who are like, yes, 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 we need this. Oh, please help us do this. But then also negotiating with people who don't, or I, maybe a better way to put it is people whose personal or organizational goals and power are not aligned with making the kinds of changes that I'm recommending in digital. Mm -hmm. um, they may be people who have a print focus and their power base is from putting out a print magazine. So coming in and saying, hey, what if we took all the stories out of the print magazine and like took all the formatting off of them and put them on the web and people could search and find them and cut them up in different ways. Those people often don't like that. That's not <laughs> what they want to have happen. So figuring out how to, you know, like, I guess it's like, I sometimes describe it as like a hug with one hand and a smack upside the head with the other <laughs> that, you know, you have to figure out what, what's going to what's going to make that change happen. And sometimes it's really doing a lot of selling and explaining and, you know, trying to get people excited about the vision. And sometimes it's going to the executive and saying, I need you in this meeting because you're going to be the one who says, no, we're doing this. And, you know, there's no arguing about it. We're just going to do it. Uh, it's, it's, that's what's so interesting to me about organizational change is how, what, how you figure out where you need to nudge and where you need to let things lie. Sure. Yeah, it's it's as much an emotional process as, as anything else, I would imagine. Um, who do you think is, uh, I suppose, doing 
I don't want to say content strategy, but I suppose moving content forward or moving digital forward well, both in kind of like, I suppose, the big organizational space where some of this work happens because there are companies that are around for a long time, but also, uh, you know, who are the new players on the field that you think are, are doing exciting things in content? You know, I'm, I am actually quite interested in a new crop of content management systems that are emerging today. So um, tools like Contentful, I'm on their advisory board, or Craft CMS is another good one. I think that when I look at the content management space, it it is so dominated by like very traditional enterprise software sales. So you know, people, I don't, I don't, I want, I'm not going to disparage any of the platforms <laughs> on the market today, but I think that. It is a very traditional enterprise sale, and it is very focused on having a bunch of sales guys come in and tell the client that, you know, to tell the prospective customer that the product can do whatever they want it to do. And whether that product actually does that or does it well is a completely different conversation. I think that I, I am very sympathetic to large enterprises that are wrestling with the decision of which platform do they go with. I don't, I don't think it's an easy process at all. And I don't think that the CMS vendors are all that well aligned with, with explaining to their customers what the product does well and what the product doesn't well, do well. So I think there's a new crop of, of products coming on the marketplace. And, and probably one of the strongest selling points of them is that they are decoupled. So rather than selling a monolithic system that is intended to solve every content management problem that you might have from content repository to personalization to managing, you know, to managing the content to building the web pages to publishing the web pages, they actually just focus on a smaller set of those problems, typically the content repository and the author experience. And and then with APIs that can come out of that, you can have other systems on the front end to actually manage the page building and the page publishing. You can have other systems that manage personalization or other business rules. And it's a, I, I think the idea of choosing microservices rather than one monolithic system obviously has its own set of problems. But I think it it shows that there's innovation in this space and that if a large enterprise were considering what they're going to do for their CMS in the future, rather than thinking of it as one giant package that they have to keep, they either have to keep or they have to tear out the entire thing when they want to upgrade. They might think of it as a set of smaller services that have APIs that talk to each other. And with something like that, then you can innovate, you can make changes to one piece of it without necessarily having to tear everything out. So if I could tell clients that in 10 years they could have a system where they would never again have to do a large-scale content migration because they would just have a content repository and an author experience that was decoupled from the front end so they could redesign their website to their heart's content without ever having to you know, physically tear out the back end, I think that'd be a really good sell. I'd like <laughs> I'd like everybody to get on board with that vision for the future. <laughs> Seems like such a simple thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just to close, I wonder if there is one piece of advice that you would give to um, someone starting a, maybe a new product business um, that had some kind of content focus, even if they weren't particularly aware that, that content was even part of, of what they were building. What's the kind of one thing that you would you think people should keep in mind as they're starting out to consider with in terms of content strategy? 
So I would think for everybody, if I could get them to spend the time up front discussing the content and discussing the content structure, its workflow, the editorial processes, the goals of the content, separate from having a conversation about what that new product should look like, I think that that really pays off. And I know it's hard to do. I know it's like, I can't tell you how many meetings I walk into where I'm like, hey, we're going to have a conversation about this content and what it's going to be and how it's going to work and how it's going to be structured. And everybody's sitting there in the room being like, when are you going to show us a picture of the web page? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm never going to show you a picture of the web page. <laughs> and it's, it's, they don't like that. But I will tell you that that's the right way to do it. And it's, you know, it's not that you never designed the website, that that if you spend the time really focused on the content and the goals of the content and the structure of the content and the purpose of the content, before you jump into those conversations about, you know, how, what should this look like and how many links should there be and what color should it be, those other decisions about the design are so much easier. And sometimes when I talk to designers where they're like, oh, it's so frustrating because we can never get the content. I'm like, you're not having the right conversations about the content. Like if you spent the time upfront doing these very traditional content strategy processes, your design process would be easier. And you wouldn't be in this battle with your client saying like, oh, God, we told them they had to give us all the content by this date and they didn't give it to us. You would know what the pieces were going to be. You'd have those components in place, even if if the client was still working on what the actual words were. Sure. So that's my advice is that content strategy offers tools and a process that can help every organization. Well, it's powerful advice. I I absolutely agree. Um, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io. 